Hill Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. In 2007, our daughter was born. At the time, I was just beginning to deconstruct the Christian faith that I had grown up in. And so our daughter was born into this church, a church at which she could not lead because of her gender, no matter how good and wise and loving she was. In 2010, still deconstructing, but also reconstructing, Pearl Church made the just and equitable decision to repent, to move toward the heart of God and to bless this church with female leaders whose wisdom and goodness could shape church practice and policy at every level. I will always remember going home after the board made the decision. I held a squirrely little three-year-old in my arms and I spoke over her life. You can be whoever you are just as you are and you can participate and lead fully in this community that we're a part of. It was a powerful moment for me as a dad. Two days ago on our daughter's 15th birthday, we woke to news that Roe had been overturned. Bewildered, frightened, upset, mad. That's how I felt. Just three days ago, my daughter and every woman across this country had the right to explore their body, to enjoy their body, to experience their body in connection with others. And every woman had the agency to make decisions about their bodies based on the particularity of their lives. In the blink of an eye, our daughter and every woman across this country lost agency regarding their bodies, regarding the particularity of their lives. And while abortion may be an ethical issue for some, to be clear, to say that abortion is anti-Christian or to say that abortion is unbiblical, that is something much different. And so, to be very clear, I want to say abortion is most certainly not anti-Christian, nor is it unbiblical. Now, I know that this is tender, and so I want to ask that you please hear me out. A Christian who says that abortion is anti-Christian or unbiblical is, in most cases, a conservative Christian or an evangelical Christian or a fundamentalist Christian. For a conservative, evangelical, or fundamentalist Christian to declare that abortion is anti-Christian or unbiblical is the essence of that which is called non-sequitur. Non-sequitur is a conclusion or statement, conclusion or statement, that does not logically follow from a previous argument or statement. And so I'll give you an example. Yesterday, I was the recipient of a mass email from Mark Estes. He's the pastor of a local megachurch called Mana Church. 
Uh, one of their um, satellite churches actually meets downstairs here at EcoTrust on Sundays. I did not ask to be on this mass email list, and after receiving it, I replied and asked to be removed from their list. I made it clear that I do not agree with their approach to the Bible and its appropriation for use in today's world. The email was titled, City Pastor, Sanctity of Human Life Resources. And it was intended to help ministers explain why abortion is anti-Christian and unbiblical. Sanctity of human life. Sanctity of human. Sanctity. The word sanctity is defined as the quality of being holy, sacred, saintly. And so this is to say that human life is holy, sacred, saintly. That's the statement. That's the position. Conservative, evangelical, and fundamentalist Christians state that human life is holy, sacred, and saintly. Therefore, they conclude, abortion is anti-Christian and unbiblical. Now, for that which is non-sequitur, the majority of conservative, evangelical, and fundamentalist Christians believe that abortion is anti-Christian and unbiblical because human life is holy, sacred, and saintly. And yet, they believe that these saints are born in utter depravity. That's non-sequitur. The majority of conservative, evangelical, and fundamentalist Christians believe that abortion is anti-Christian and unbiblical because human life is holy, sacred, and saintly, and yet, they believe that billions of people who do not think just what they think will be eternally and consciously damned. That's non-sequitur. The majority of conservative, evangelical, and fundamentalist Christians believe that abortion is anti-Christian and unbiblical because human life is holy, sacred, and saintly, and yet they are pro-war, pro-guns, pro-death penalty, and anti-queer. That is non-sequitur. The majority of conservative, evangelical, and fundamentalist Christians believe that abortion is anti-Christian and unbiblical because human life is holy, sacred, and saintly, and yet they are against COVID vaccines. Don't tell me what to do with my body, which is not only non-sequitur, but horrifyingly and tragically ironic in regard to their position on abortion. And lastly, the majority of conservative, evangelical, and fundamentalist Christians believe that abortion is anti-Christian and unbiblical because human life is holy, sacred, and saintly, and yet they insist on reading the Bible mostly literally, which means that they believe in a violent God in need of blood to feel okay about humans, commanding war and the mass murder of non-Jews, men, women, and children living in the land of promise. Not only is this non-sequitur, but as I wrote to Pastor Mark, it's also terribly misguided, a terribly misguided approach to the Bible. Christians have to think about the Bible and what the Bible is and what its function is in the world. We're offering a class in July. If you're wrestling with this stuff, please participate in the class. Now, for a moment, just a moment, let's hop onto the conservative, evangelical, and fundamentalist Christian non-sequitur train of thinking and saying that human life is holy, sacred, and saintly, therefore, abortion is anti-Christian and unbiblical. Let's just, let's just go with that for a moment, okay? Question, what then is the Christian and biblical response to women who birth children that they do not want or feel equipped or capable to raise in the particularity of their lives? Well, in my mind, we would need to ensure universal health care, 
That would be really important for these kids. And we'd absolutely want to pay for education at every level. That would be really important. And we'd have to, we would, we would have to enact climate change policy to guarantee a hospitable planet. That would be really important. And without a doubt, we need to intentionally increase the social care network to ensure that children and their moms are as supported as possible in our country. That would be really important. And yet, the majority of conservative, evangelical, and fundamentalist Christians who believe that abortion is anti-Christian and unbiblical are against universal health care, against paid education, against climate change legislation, and against the expansion of the social care network. In fact, most of them want to constrict that care in our country. And no matter what we think about abortion, that, that I believe this line of thinking and its outcomes and its non sequitur logic, I believe with my whole heart is not only distinctly unethical and tragically non sequitur, but it is deeply anti-Christian. And it is the absence of thoughtful Bible reading today and it misses the heart of Jesus' gospel that he declares of good news in Luke chapter four. Over the last few days, I've been feeling lost about what to do. I don't know how you've been feeling. Honestly, with these decisions being made at the highest partisan levels, it's easy to feel powerless, isn't it? Anyone feel powerless? Anyone wondering what's next? Anyone feeling concern? We must continue to vote on the federal, state, and local levels. We must. We must support legislation and organizations that work to protect women's rights and the rights of marginalized humans in our society. And as Christians, perhaps our most effectual effort is to make sure that we're participating in nonviolent Christian communities that co-mingle, co-mingle reason and faith in their attempts to live out Jesus' love for today. For not only is our country in need of much change, but so is this country's Christianity that leverages power and might to solidify white, straight, masculine power in the name of Christ. At the expense of the other, the different, the marginalized, for whom God says, on these people my favor rests. This morning, we transition to our summer sermon series, and surprisingly, or, or perhaps providentially, today's sermon has been planned for a while, and it actually speaks to some of what I've just talked about, and some of what is happening in our world today. In ancient times, it was a tradition for Jews to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem five times a year. Four of those trips to Jerusalem were to celebrate feasts, and, and one of those trips was to participate in a fast. And so you can imagine these four feasts in this fast, they were spread out over the course of a year and these trips to Jerusalem accomplished a couple things. First, these trips interrupted Israel's calendars. They intentionally interrupted their calendars, their days, their tasks, their travel, their work, their lives. I mean, think of it. Five times a year, life was put on hold to attend to feasts and to make space in life to fast. And that brings me to the second thing that these trips accomplished. These trips swallowed up Israel's personal lives and individual stories into God's greater story of divine love. And so at these festivals and fasts, Jews gathered from all over the villages of Palestine to remember who they were. They, they came together to find motivation and direction for continuing their lives of faith. 
They gathered in order to orient their lives, to reorient their lives in the life of God. And if you think about it, that's a lot like the function of church. Or if you're not a regular attendee of church, maybe the big church holidays, right? On Sundays or on holidays, our days, our tasks, our travel, our work, it all gets interrupted so that we can attend to feasts and fasts, to prayers and worship, to loving stories and inclusive tables. And together, our personal lives and our individual stories are swept up into a greater story about ultimate reality and life in this world. With this context in mind, like Israel, I hope we can leave these coming summer Sundays remembering who we deeply and truly are. I hope we can leave these coming Sundays motivated to live our lives in more deep revolutionary faith in Jesus. Over these coming Sundays, I hope we can find our hearts oriented to the very heart of God, which is love. Back into the world, Right back into the world, but different from the old harmful ways and habits of this world. Different rhythms, subversive story, inclusive, truly inclusive table, and the divine motivation of love. According to tradition, it was during these festivals and fast in Israel that it became customary for someone to get up at the, at the festival or fast and, and to read an assigned scroll. In fact, one scroll was assigned to each of the festivals and to the fast. And each reading at each festival and fast had the effect of nourishing a particular aspect of Israel's life. And so, Song of Songs was read. Learning about intimacy in the context of sexuality, well, that was read over the Feast of Passover. And Ruth, developing an identity as a person who belongs at God's table, was read during the feast of Pentecost. And Esther, becoming a celebratory community of faith in the midst of this world's hostilities, was read during the feast of Purim. Lamentations, dealing with suffering in the context of destruction, was read during the ninth of Ab fast. And lastly, Ecclesiastes, unmasking religious illusion, was read during the feast of Booths. Intimacy through sexuality, Belonging in community, joy in hostility, grief in suffering, and the unmasking of religious illusion. What wonderful, worthwhile concepts for us to spend our summer thinking about together as a community. And perhaps, like Israel, we'll find ourselves leaving each week remembering more clearly who we are, finding the motivation for continuing lives of faith and oriented more closely, acutely closely to the divine heart that's love. This morning we begin with the feast of Passover and the book of Song of Songs. In this morning's reading from the Hebrew scriptures, we heard from Exodus chapter 12, which tells the story of Passover. Now, some context. Israel is captive in Egypt, crying out for help. God always hears those who cry for help. God hears their cry, sends Moses who performs signs and wonders, the last of which is Passover. On this first Passover, each family took a lamb, slaughtered it, wiped its blood on their doorposts. That night, they roasted the lamb on an open fire. They ate bread, we're told, without yeast, eating it all up, being sure to leave none until morning. When they ate, they had their cloaks tucked into their belts. They had their sandals on their feet. They had staffs in hand. And they ate in haste with the expectation of salvation. And in the morning, after being passed over by the angel of the Lord, Pharaoh declared, go. 
and Israel fled Egypt into the wilderness on the way to the land of promise. That's the story of Passover. Now, if you were to fast forward from Exodus chapter 12 to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 16, you'd see that God commands Israel to begin observing Passover as an annual feast, year after year after year after year. Thus, Passover became an annual feast celebrated by Jews year after year as a reminder of God's great and mighty salvation. Now, for a moment, imagine that you've traveled with your family to Jerusalem for the Passover. You've just finished the Passover meal. The story has been told and talked about. The Passover prayers have been prayed. The Passover hymns have been sung. And to conclude the feast, your grandfather pulls out a scroll stands up at the head of the table and begins to read. Darling, kiss me. Oh, kiss me with kisses from your mouth. For your love is better than wine. Your scent, it washes over me. It blows me down. From wobbling knees whom my soul loves, where do you work? Where do you nap? No longer stand like a young stag behind a wall, gazing in at the window, looking through a lattice. Come near, be close to me. O fairest, arise, my love, my fair one, come away with me. Winter's past, rain is gone, flowers present, singing abundant. The wines are in blossom, they give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away with me. Let me kiss your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. You are beautiful. Your eyes are like doves, your hair like silk, your teeth like sugar, your lips like crimson thread. Take notes right, for Valentine's Day? Your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate. Your neck is like an ornate flower. Your thighs are like jewels. And your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks wine. Grandpa. I mean, right? That's quite a finale to Passover, isn't it? And every word I just read, minus some very minor adjustments, comes straight out of Song of Songs, which, as I've already shared, is traditionally read at Passover's end. As Jewish scholar Louis Finkelstein writes, the Seder, Passover, ends with the recital of various psalms, the tasting of a fourth and final cup of wine, I love that, the singing of various hymns, and finally with popular songs dating from the medieval times. Then, writes Finkelstein, the head of the household concludes the whole service by reading Canticles, which is the Song of Songs. That's interesting, right? Passover first and Song of Songs last. And whereas Passover has its context in the great escape from Egypt in Exodus, Song of Songs has no context. It simply and provocatively begins, kiss me. (laughs) And off we go, jumping right into the middle of ancient, erotic, lyrical poetry and song. That's actually the scholarly uh, definition of the genre for Song of Songs. Erotic, lyrical poetry. It's in your Bible. And so you can imagine Song of Songs is a controversial book. In fact, no one can agree on a structure. Some argue it breaks into five parts. There are others who argue, no, it actually breaks into 26 parts. (laughs) There's debate over the characters. Some argue for two primary characters that is one story with one plot, while others argue for three characters with multiple dramas. Then there's the fact that God isn't really mentioned in a book that's all about sexual 
harder. Song of Songs, an erotic lyrical poem with no context, no structure, unclear characters, and an almost absent God. And while it makes a little sense when you look at it as a book or a story or a manual to be dissected, it really begins to take shape and have meaning when you close your eyes and listen to its words. And that's because Song of Songs is a song perhaps even a multitude of songs. You see, it doesn't make points as much as it sings melodies and harmonies. And it's from this vantage point that the song sings loud and clear. A lover is consumed by the beloved. A lover is consumed by the beloved. And their love, their longing for each other is so strong that their words palpitate like a heart. It's passion. It's fervor, it's zeal, it is an all-consuming fire. And this song, these songs, they dance and skip and swirl all over the place without rhyme or reason. A lot like the crazy love a person feels when they just enter into a romance. You know what I mean? Like those times the poetry just gushes from your lips, or those times that your body quakes in longing to be touched or an expectation of touching, or those times that you feel like you're going to absolutely explode in happiness and thrill and wonder and questions and embarrassment. This is Song of Songs. As the great Rabbi Akiba famously put it, for all the world is not as worthy as the day on which the Song of Songs was given to Israel. For all the writings are holy, but the Song of Songs is the holy of holies. I think Rabbi Akiba is right. I think he's right because this is everyone's song. It's the human song. It's my song, it's your song, it's a pubescent 13-year-old's song. And dare we wonder, could this also be the song of the divine? Could this be divine song? I mean, this book does have everything that's anything, losing yourself, being found, pursued, chased, giving up, surrendering, giving what you have and all that you are away, absolute ecstasy. It's a song we all sing, or it's at least a song that we all long to sing, or perhaps it's at least a song that we all long to have sung to us. For truly, it's the holy of holiest songs. There are two refrains in the song. The first refrain is an exhortation to the daughters of Jerusalem who seem to be watching this love unfold before their very eyes. The refrain reads, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not stir up or awaken love until it is ready. This refrain occurs three times. Chapter two, verse seven. Chapter three, verse five. Chapter eight, verse four. Daughters of Jerusalem, I adjure you, do not stir up or awaken love until it is ready. Daughters of Jerusalem, I adjure you, do not stir up or awaken love until it is ready. Now, doesn't this exhortation strike you as odd? It's odd, right? I mean, throughout the song, the daughters of Jerusalem play the role of witnessing the love. They witness the passion and hear the words between the lovers. In many ways, you and I function like the daughters of Jerusalem when we read Song of Songs. We are witnessing the passion. We are observing this wild, erotic love between two people. We watch it happen. And then not once, not twice, but three times we're told, ah, 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 do not stir up or awaken love until it is ready. What? 
great. Well, well, then take your love to a room, right? Like, don't dance and skip and swirl and swing about your song right in front of me. What is that all about? Well, what if the refrain, do not awaken love until it is ready, what if that isn't a prohibition or a restriction, but rather an invitation? An invitation to you and me, the daughters of Jerusalem, to get ready for the song. Get ready for the song. For it's the song you long to sing, but remember you must be ready to sing the song. And that's a really interesting methodology. I mean, religious people don't usually respond to sexual desire by, or we usually do respond to sexual desire by ignoring it or suppressing it. That's usually what we do. Or we demoralize it, right? We make it into a bad thing. Or we marginalize it and we minimize its power in our lives and in this world. But that's the opposite of what Song of Songs does. This song chooses a different path. Song of Songs sings about sexual ardor. Song of Songs sings about sexual ardor as one of the most, if not the most beautiful, explosive, captivating songs in the entire world. Song of Songs holds up sexual ardor like a banner and sings, hey, look at this. Check this out. Don't be fooled. It's even better than you imagine. Get ready. Get ready. Well, how? How do we get ready for this song? Well, there's a second refrain that the song sings, and it's, I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. This refrain is in chapter 2, verse 16, chapter 6, verse 3, chapter 7, verse 10. And as I understand it, this refrain grounds the song of sexuality in intimacy. Now, to be clear, this isn't to say that the song demands intimacy in order to be sexually active. That's, that's a different song. That's often a religious song. But the Song of Songs isn't about religious demands. The song is about something different. The song is about the beauty, the awe, the wonder that is evoked when two humans experience the goodness of this declaration. I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. For it is here, here in the very center of their sexuality during which they are willing to empty themselves for the other that this song does its singing. I'd like to say that again. It's here in the very center of their sexuality during which they are willing to empty themselves for the other that this song does its singing. Now, I'll come back to this idea of self-emptying in just a moment. According to the Song of Songs, those who are willing to surrender, perhaps even die for another, are those who are ready to awaken to this extravagant love. And this love that ruins you this love that kills you, this love that makes you ironically live, dare I say it is the very thing that you and I were created to have and to be and to sing about. For this song of all songs declares in self-surrender for the other, all-consuming love makes everything new. I'll say that again. In self-surrender for the other, all-consuming love makes everything new. Or as Rabbi Akiba put it, holy, holy, holiest of holies. I'll conclude with some questions that begin to make some connections between Passover and Song of Songs. What could a story about a slaughtered lamb have to do with a song about the naked bodies of lovers? Or to, to put it the other way, 
What could a song about the naked bodies of lovers have to do with a story about a slaughtered lamb? Well, certainly it must be something about the goodness of giving ourselves away to another. It's at least saying something like that. And here's another question. What could a story about freedom from bondage have to do with a song about human intimacy? Or or to put it the other way, what could a song about human intimacy have to do with a story about freedom from bondage? Well, certainly it must at least say something about how our human union is that which is capable of leading to human freedom and flourishing. Like if we just realized how deeply connected we we already are, it would have to have something to do with human freedom and flourishing. And here's another question. What in the world could a story about salvation have to do with a song about ecstasy? Or, Or to put it the other way, what could a song about ecstasy have to do with a story about salvation? Well, it'd certainly have to do something about the fact that true salvation is not oppressive or self-deprecating, but rapturously vibrant and alive, like being more alive than ever, maybe even more yourself than ever, nothing less. And lastly, how could the song of all songs possibly be a fitting conclusion to the feast of Passover? How could this song of all songs be a fitting conclusion to our Christian celebration of Eucharist, which stands on the shoulders of Passover? Well, just a bit ago, I said that I'd come back to an idea. That idea was that it's here in the very center of these humans' willingness to empty themselves for the other that this song does its singing. And about this notion of self-emptying, Paul makes an astonishing statement in Philippians chapter 2 which kind of reads like a commentary on Eucharist and Song of Songs. Paul writes, If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, have the same love, be in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, Regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. But listen to this. But he emptied himself, self-giving, taking the form of a servant, being born in human likeness, being found in human form, He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For a moment, try and imagine a world in which every person, especially those who the world likens to godlike status, imagine a world in which every person were to empty themselves out for the other. The migrant, the poor, the sexually or racially different, who we all come to realize aren't actually other but God's beloved, our beloved, the beloved, worthy of this world's generous, extravagant self-emptying. Could you imagine? We must be able to imagine it, otherwise we may never strive to embody it here now in our world today, which desperately needs love for the other. Let us pray.
God, thank you for filling our bodies with desire, longing for intimacy, hope for being touched. It's a longing so strong that it makes us want to and willing to give ourselves away. And unfortunately, we rarely see the beloved as those who are different from us. And so I pray that you would help us to see that. Every day when we walk outside of our home, every evening when we turn on the news, every Sunday when we come to this table surrounded by diverse people, every moment when we bear witness to that which makes us notice difference. Help us hear your voice whisper, beloved. Beloved, beloved that wakens our hearts to self-emptying and generous giving. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.